Um, this is the last week, everyone. Um, if you want to submit a question for us as a pastoral team to preach, we're going to be in the middle of August and the middle of September, maybe about six weeks, I think it is, six or about six weeks. Um, we're going to put together uh, next week, we're going to sit, uh, not next week, but the week after, uh, sometime soon. <laughs> We're going to put together a list of questions that we could deal with for six weeks. So now's the time. If you have a question, you haven't sent it in, send it in. We're going to do a short series because you asked and deal with some theological, cultural uh, th uh, issues or things you want us to answer from the scripture. And uh, then we'll jump back into the Gospel of Luke uh, come mid, uh, mid to the end of September. So just take a short break and then we'll do this series and then move on with the Gospel according to Luke. Where we find ourselves this morning. So open your Bibles again. Your Bible asks, wherever you're getting your scriptures from, to the gospel according to Luke. Our series, of course, as you know, is called Mission to the World. Uh, it's, it's, it's God's way of showing us through this beautiful account written by uh, Luke uh, to see Jesus, our good God and Savior, uh, loving the outsider, having compassion on the marginalized, showing mercy to the rejected particularly in their culture. So last week, if you remember, uh, chapter 9 opened up with the gathering of the apostles, capital A. None of them exist today. We talked about that last week. And he's given these apostles authority, power, uh, to cast out demons and to cure diseases. It was done not only as, a, as an act of mercy, but he, Jesus gives these apostles these authorities to authenticate and to validate the message of the gospel. Chapter 9, verse 2, he, Jesus, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, I believe, and I think I mentioned this before, that the main ministry, the primary ministry for them to do was to preach the gospel, and the healing and the, and the deliverances were just a signpost authenticating and validating their message. Why do I say that? Let me tell you something that the scripture is clear about and experience will tell us. Everyone who's been healed in those days, everyone who had a demon uh, uh, delivered from a demon in that day, died. You're welcome. I know that's what you came here to hear. But it's inevitable, right? No matter what you're healing you've received, death awaits us all. But if you respond to the message of the gospel and the person of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, you could then say with the apostle Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, if you live for any other kingdom, for any other, any other king, to die is loss. To live for money, to live for my job, to die is loss. To live for, for health or my looks, to live for my family, to die is loss. But for Christ, excuse me, for Paul and every follower of Christ, death is gain because we become, and we, we, it's the closest relationship the possible relationship, the eternal union we have with Christ becomes not just faith but sight. So the apostles were instructed to preach the kingdom of God. Preach the king has come. And remember last week also verse 3 of chapter 12, excuse me, of chapter 9. Um, Jesus sent his disciples out without any provision, verse 3. He said to them, chapter 9, verse 3, he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Take one tunic out of garment, right? Jesus makes it clear, your dependency, as you move out in this preaching ministry, in this healing ministry, your dependency is going to be on me. Rely not on your own resources, but entrust yourself entirely to God. His providential care for you is where you will find your help in need. And he uses other people. He's going to use the, the Jewish communities to serve 
the apostles, but he's saying, trust me, go out in my power, go out in my authority, and go out in my providence. And now when we get to chapter 9, verse 10a, the beginning of that verse, it says, they returned, the apostles returned, and told Jesus all that they had done, and then, look what it says, he took them, that's Jesus, taking the apostles, and drew, withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, okay? This is the context. Ministry is busy. The apostles have been uh, probably exhausted. Time of ministry, they've, they've, been, they've been busy doing the things that God has called them to, Christ has called them to. And Jesus wants to get away from the crowds with his apostles, his disciples, for some rest. I'm sure it was for some debriefing as well. What happened? What took place? What's going on? How did it go? That kind of stuff, right? But also, I think, as we see in this next text, he brought them away and the circumstances arose so that Jesus is going to teach them again about his provision, about trusting him for his provision. And that's what we're going to see in the text. So three things, not a very fancy outline, but it is what it is. The kingdom continues to be preached. We'll see that when Jesus gathers with his apostles. The apostles are still being prepared. It's about preparation for his departure as he rises from the dead and sends them out to, to preach the gospel. The church is birthed. And then the Lord is again providing for his people. We'll see that as we conclude. So let's look first at the kingdom of God, right? On the return, the apostles say, hey, look, uh, uh, this is what's going on. He said, let's go to Bethsaida. Let's, let's get away. Verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he, Jesus, welcomed them, and he, Jesus, spoke to them, that word them, spoke to them is continuous verb, continually speak to them, of the kingdom of God, and he cured those who had need of healing, okay? I want you to know that this healing, or excuse me, this this feeding of the 5,000, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, is found in all four gospel accounts. It's the only miracle other than the resurrection from the grave that is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what we glean from these other accounts and the other three gospel accounts is that Jesus is not only trying to get away from the crowd for rest and debriefing, um, but the crowd seems to be following him. If you read those different details, uh, Jesus is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. He gets in a boat. He's on his way to the eastern shore. Uh, he goes eastward in the, on the Sea of Galilee, headed to Bethsaida. Matthew chapter 4 tells us this. When he went ashore, as he got off the boat, he saw a great crowd, and Jesus had compassion on them, all right, and healed their sick. He gets to the boat. Gets off the boat, sees the crowd, has compassion, and heals their sick, Matthew 14. Mark 6 says that many saw them going, getting in the boat with his apostles, and they recognized them, and they ran on foot. They're following the, the, tour, the, the, the contour of the, of the Sea of Galilee, and they're running on foot from the towns, and they got ahead of him to Bethsaida. It says when Jesus got there, he saw the crowd, Mark 6, and had compassion on them. And then it says, because... They were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. So Jesus sees them, sheep without a shepherd, has compassion on them. He gets off the boat, there's a crowd waiting. In John chapter 6, verse 3, is interesting. It says, same incident, John's perspective. Jesus went up to the mountain. Now, it's not talking about a large mountain, but a hill. And there he sat with his disciples, and it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That's the signpost. That's an indicator. Feast of the Passover was at hand. So you can see there's a lot going on. Disciples are reporting back to him. There are giant crowds that have been 
chasing him and following him, gathering. Jesus is, is compassionate, has compassion on this crowd. He's teaching them. He's healing people. And according to the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus just found out that John the Baptist's head got cut off by Herod. All this is going on. I mean, I'm just, just thinking through this. It makes me tired just thinking about it, never mind doing ministry. And sometimes you just need rest, and that's what Jesus is trying to do, get some rest. Bring his disciples. He just heard about his cousin, his relative John. He's got his head cut off. He's got, he's got his apostles coming to him. He's got crowds coming to him. He wants to get some rest, but the compassion of Jesus would not be put on hold for rest, right? The rest he was seeking never came. It never happened, this time anyway. And it tells us that ministry is not for the lazy. Loving people, caring about people, not for, the, not for the lazy. Also very interesting, as I said, John mentioned the Passover season. The Passover season was a time when they were commemorating the, the deliverance from Egypt to the promised land. It, it was a time in the life of the Jewish folks, of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, of this really great, full of, of excitement, expectation. They were hoping for another Moses. As they remembered the Passover and the, and the scriptures, they, they know that, that Moses spoke about someone who would come, who would be a deliverer. Some even hoped it was John the Baptist when he showed up on the scene. You see, they had this hope, they had this expectation of the coming king, of, of a coming redeemer. And many times it was, it, was, it was spoken of in the scripture as the kingdom of God. We've been talking a lot about the kingdom of God because Jesus has been preaching it. He's been teaching it. A lot about the kingdom, but what I want to do this morning uh, with us is to try to help you and I understand this excitement, this great expectation of the Jewish people. In order to understand the preaching of the kingdom, you have to understand what they heard when Jesus preached the kingdom of God. And the first thing you need to understand, when Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God, it wasn't like he just showed up on the scene and it's some New Testament teaching. Like they never heard about the kingdom of God. This is, Jesus brought it to the scene. That's not the case. In fact, the biblical idea of the kingdom of God is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. is grounded in the confidence that, and the hope that there is one eternal living God who created the universe and revealed himself to us, not only through the scriptures, but has a purpose for mankind. That's what they believe. That's what we believe. He had a redemptive purpose. He's not leaving us in the brokenness of humanity. The kingdom of God goes way back to Genesis 1. We see in Genesis 1 that God creates the world, all that we see out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He creates man and women in the image, in his image and likeness. It's paradise. You read chapters 1 and 2. It's untainted by sin. There was perfect peace. There was shalom in the Garden of Eden. Innocence, beauty. God comes to his creation, Adam and Eve, who are naked in the garden and gives them this great freedom and says, listen, eat, drink, be fruitful, and multiply. Great command. But don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a picture of paradise. Men and women walking intimately with their king, with their God. Psychological, physical, spiritual peace. In God's rule, everything in creation was used and devoted to and experienced in the worship of their God. Chapter 3 comes, we know the story, sin enters the world, fractures the shalom, sin is rebellion. What ends up now is we're not, we're not pursuing God, 
We're not seeking after God. We're not worshiping God. We're worshiping created things, worshiping other things as our king. So our desires no longer uh, erupt into worship of God. We're, we're, we're left empty. We're seeking. We're, we're looking for things. Everything seems to be hollow. We make idols out of that which is supposed to be enjoyed in the context of worship. But then God steps in the midst of chaos and gives a promise that someday he will send the seed of a woman who will crush the head of Satan and will, rest- will forgive, will restore all that was jacked up and twisted and broken by sin. And then we know the story. Adam, uh, excuse me, Abraham is called out of a pagan land and given a promise. Look, you're going to have many descendants. I'm going to gather a people. I'm going to gather a people. I will be their Lord. I'll be their king. I will bless the entire world. The restored kingdom of God, once again, being ushered in, being spoken about through, through a, a day in which the future, a future day which Abraham saw that would come through his line. Then Abraham has children. We know Isaac and Jacob uh, and Joseph. And they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And God raises up Moses and says, look, call my people together again and get out of Egypt. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they may come to the land. They may worship me as the one true God. It's kingdom time. Let's go. A movie to the land of, uh, of, that's flowing with milk and honey. Moses, you know, doesn't get in because of disobedience. And Joshua steps in. But there's a problem. They get into the land, what went with them? From Egypt to the promised land, sin, rebellion. And they're like, all right, we're in the promised land. No, we We need a king. We got a king. His name is the Lord our God. No, no, no. We need a man king. God's like, this ain't going to go well for you. You really want it? Yeah, we want a king like all the other nations. Wah, wah, wah. So, all right, I'll give you a king. It's going to go bad. And Saul comes, and there's still brokenness. There's still corruption. There's still not this, this future Imagery that's being spoke about of the coming of God, his reign and rule over the earth. And the Old Testament prophets pointed and continue to point. I want you to hear that. I want you to see that. Continue to point to to a great and glorious day of of the coming of the reign of God. The Jewish people kept getting these promises, these pictures, these prophecies of this great day in which the rule and the reign of God and the power of God will come. It's everything their hope was on. They they built their life around. Hope of the redemption of God, the living God. Isaiah speaks about it. When we went through Isaiah, we saw it. As someday all the human problems and sin will be done away with. Even the physical environment. The lamb will lay with the lion, that kind of stuff. Peace and safety and security. This blessed future. Malachi, the last book of the Bible, of the Old Testament. We hear about the kingdom of God coming. The great and glorious day of the reign and the rule of God. That was their hope. That was their expectation. That's what the prophets and the prophecies and and the pictures and the festival, everything pointed to. It's what Jesus was preaching. I want you to hear that. And in Luke 17, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, you know, you keep talking about this kingdom stuff. When is the kingdom of God coming? That's what they ask him. When is the eternal uh, and the external restoration of the fractured world coming? When is his good, glorious, great, merciful, just, holy, righteous king, when's he coming to lead us, to guide us, to protect us, to provide for us, to restore shalom when God is back in our midst? Many people in that day were looking for that literal kingdom to come to earth. They missed And because of that, they missed the point that Jesus was trying to say. That kingdom is here now. I'm here, Jesus says. The restoration 
of what was broken in Genesis 3 is here. The one everyone waiting for is here. The fulfillment of, of the promise to Abraham is here. The one who will bless all the nations is here. It's begun. All your hopes, all your dreams, all the prophecies, all the promises has begun. Your king, your provider, your protector, your, the one that loves you, the one who, who cares for you, the one who provides for you is here. That's the imagery. That's the hope. That's the expectation. And we read about the kingdom of God. We read about it being present now for followers of Christ. Paul said, Christ has delivered us, delivered us, has already delivered us, Christians, from the dominion of darkness and already transferred us, what? To the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the realm. Uh, that's the kingdom. I mean, that's, it's now here in our midst as Jesus reigns and rules over his church, over your life. It also talks about the future. Jesus even said, many will come from the east and the west, sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There's a day in which you'll be fully restored. And that's what I've been saying. And I, and I want you to see the expectation of these people. The word kingdom, I mentioned before, it's not first the realm, it is first the king. The king. The time has come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom has at hand. Why? Jesus is here. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the good news of the kingdom. That's what they've been waiting for. Jesus, the true king with a true kingdom, has come and he's making everything right. The restoration has come. All that's broken, all the sin in the world, all that's twisted and jacked up will be fixed. Fear will be gone. Suffering uh, gone. Tears gone. Joy permanent. Poverty and justice over. Hunger, disease, death, no more. The present reality of King Jesus now reigning over our lives, over the church, and the future when he will come and reign again. That's where we live. And we not only live in that tension between uh, the coming kingdom, the kingdom that is present, but listen, we live in the expectation and hope of it. Let that settle in. We live in the tension, yes, the coming kingdom, Jesus is here, present by the power of the Spirit, the coming kingdom is coming, but that's our hope too. That's our expectation too. That's our, that, we, we, Jesus is, is working all things together. And that's the tremendous hope. That's our tremendous, the prophets, the, the, the imageries, the festivals, the promises, the hope, uh, the anticipation was part of their DNA, but family, it so is ours. Do you understand that this morning? Do you have that great hope that goes back centuries? We're grafted in. That's our hope. That's our expectation. That's our joy. That's our promise. The kingdom continues to be preached. I want you to understand the expectations and the hope that they had. Okay? Number two, verse 12. The apostles are still being taught here. They're still being prepared for ministry. Now the day began to wear away. Stop right there one moment. <laughs> the gospel according to John, it, it, it says when this was going on, that Jesus lifted his eyes, saw the crowd. And this is what it says. He said to Philip, Jesus turns to Philip during this crowd gathering, turns to Philip, who was one of the apostles, and by the way, lived in Bethsaida. So he's a hometown boy. He says to him when he sees the crowd, chapter 6, verse 5, where are we? Just imagine, he turns to Philip, he sees the crowd. He says to Philip, where are we to buy bread for all these people? So that they can eat. Jesus is already thinking. 
He said this, Jesus said this, to test him. To test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Remember the context. The 12 apostles just got back from a tour of amazing ministry. Authority, power, provision. And now Jesus is setting them up. It's a setup. That was a, that was a setup, that question. Right? Jesus continuing to prepare to mentor, mentor his disciples, his apostles for ministry. They're about to learn and witness what it means to teach them, teach us to rely and trust on him. But right on cue, the disciples thought at first it would be wise to instruct God that the sun was going down and there was a need for food. Look what it says. And the twelve came to Jesus and said to him, you better send them away. Jesus, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. They're like, listen, God, just so you don't, you know, just so you understand, McDonald's is closed, Panera is closed. I don't know if you realize this, it's getting late, nothing to eat, these poor people are hungry. I mean, you could say, well, I'm, at least they cared about the people, right? We commend them for the, you know, but it seems like kind of odd that they would say, all right, there's a lot of people. We can't feed everybody. Let's get rid of them. All right, crowd, go away. We'll just stay with Jesus because we've been good with him so far. I'm sure he's got something for us to eat. You go find something. Jesus responds with, oh, I'm so glad you told me. I, I didn't realize the sun was going down. I'm only the creator of the sun and the moon and the day and the night. <laughs> Disciples were coming to Jesus and giving him advice like as though he needed it. Uh, just in case you don't know. Now, now, before we judge their stupidity, <laughs> how often do we find our place in, in, or we're in a circumstance, we're in a difficult situation, and we ourselves want to remind God, like, we have a need here. I don't know if you know that. Somehow you forgot about me. I, I, maybe some, you know, I know you're very busy. Maybe you're unaware of what I'm going through. We try to give counsel to Almighty God. Give Him instructions. What needs to be done? Jesus knows he doesn't respond with a question, but with a command. He turns to them and he says, you give them something to eat. That cracks me up. Like, what is Jesus trying to say? You give them something to eat. Is he trying to show their inadequacy, like they don't have nothing? Maybe, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing, he will later say. Was he trying to extend their internship, their mentorship? Like, I just sent you out with all kinds of authority and power, and, and, and you, were, you were doing incredible, incredible miracles. You feed them. Maybe you expected them. I don't know. In the name of Christ, right? I don't know. You had, I'm giving you the authority. I'm giving you the power. But I'll tell you one thing he's doing. He's testing their fitness for ministry. He's mentoring. He's, he is uh, preparing them for ministry. They were tired. They were looking for some, some alone time with Jesus. But the demands of hurting and hungry people take precedent. Oh, the compassion of our God. Disciples of Jesus in this room, pastors, elders, leaders, community group leaders, everyone really need to realize that ministry sometimes and many times is hard. Long hours. It's exhausting. Jesus responds with compassion. And he wants them too. And he wants us too. 
Disciples responded with, you know, we're powerless to help them. We got nothing. We got five loaves, two fish. Uh, we can't really go anywhere to buy anything, verse 13. In the gospel according to John, we learned that there was a boy, you guys know the story, who obviously had a, a mom who had enough sense to send him out with some food. So we had five loaves, barley loaves, and two small fish. Not enough to feed 5,000 men, possibly another, at least double it for, for wives and children. 10, 15,000 people. And the apostles' idea to send them out to get food is not only improbable, I mean, where are they going to get that, you know, where, what town is going to supply that many people that, with that much food, but where are they going to get the money? Philip says in John 6, listen, a whole year's wages, eight months of wages, 200 denarii, not, it's not going to be sufficient. The disciples assume that the situation is, is uh, hopeless. The only thing they didn't do, they had all kinds of suggestions, they didn't say, Jesus, you're the creator. You're the sustainer. I'm sure you could do something. They didn't ask Jesus to provide. And sometimes we don't either. Sometimes we don't either. Sometimes we find ourselves being squeezed. And sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances, situation, and we're doing everything we can to try to get through it rather than just stop for a moment and talk to Jesus first. Often we don't experience the power of God, the provision of God, because we don't ask God. I mean, they were with Jesus for a year and a half by now, at least. They saw Jesus rise people from the dead. He told a blistering windstorm and a raging sea to shut up and sit still, and it did. Maybe someone would say, hey, you could probably do something here. He said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And they did so and had them all sit down. Jesus like, look, you can't feed them, at least you can organize them. Have them sit in rows of 50. If you need to use each other's toes to count, do so, but you need about 50. I'll feed them, you organize them. And I don't think that, I mean, just put yourself there for a minute. You have, you give him five loaves of bread. It's not like big loaves, five things of bread, two fish. And he says, have everybody sit down in rows of 50. 10,000 people say you got to be thinking, for what? That doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't, I don't, why are you telling me this? And it reminded me that sometimes we find ourselves in situations that we really don't know what God is doing. Like, uh, I don't know. What this teaches us is to follow his word. Whether it makes sense or not. Follow his clear will and word for your life. Whether you know what he's doing or maybe you don't know what he's doing, his word is clear. Have them sit down. And they do so. And the contrast is clear, right? He could, they can't. So have them sit. Maybe that's the point. Maybe he was trying to get them to the place where they recognize this hard task just so that they would see that they were inadequate for the task. And that's, that's really another preparation for ministry. Their predicament has a lot to say about ministry. How often do we meet people who need help spiritually, uh, physically, emotionally? And if we're honest, we're thinking to ourselves, I am woefully inadequate for this. But in love, we say, you know what? I'll offer whatever I can do. Someone once said, and I don't know where this quote came from, it is not God's intention that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. 
Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the task which we think adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. He goes on to write, The church is always in a crisis and always will be. Difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of money, uh, lack of people, uh, outlook, endless misunderstandings, misrepresented, misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the condition requisite for the doing of them. Only the inadequate are adequate, end quote. And by grace, Jesus takes our inadequacies, my inadequacies, your inadequacies, and uses it to help people as we serve on mission for the kingdom. They were to minister, feed the people, but only because Jesus had enough and Jesus has called them and they followed him in the process. He uses them to bless other people as they sit in groups of 50. Listen, if we do not feel that we have very much to offer God, we could bring him the, the, the bread, the little bread we have and the fish. And that's all he needs if we're willing participants in the mission. And he'll multiply the efforts. If it's for his glory, he'll take what you have, whether it's a little or a lot, and multiply it for his glory. I also want us to notice what it said back in John, that he was testing them, teaching them to rely upon him, to trust him. God is a testing God, is he not? James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness have its full effect that we may be complete, Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is times of trials. It is times of hardships. It's in times when we feel inadequate that we forget to rely completely on Christ. It's those times that we must remember of, that we are, are deeply dependent on Him. That our dependency is on Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. In times of trials, we forget that, that we don't earn our salvation. Acceptance with God. In those times, remember that God has accepted us because of Jesus Christ's perfect life and atoning death in our place. We don't work for it. It is times of trials and hardship, and even when we feel inadequate, that we forget that God knows better than we know. In those times, we need to trust His sovereignty. Remember, His sovereign plan is best for our lives. In times of trials and hardship, and even inadequacy, we forget that God is the one that promises to provide. In those times, we must remember that he said he will give us our daily bread. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Jesus was testing them. Remember, Satan comes and tempts us to destroy us. God tests us to build us up. God tests his children and his purpose is not only to prove their faith that is real, but to grow in our faith. It is for our edification. Preparing for ministry, trusting him, relying upon him, growing in our faith, serving when we're exhausted. All these things the apostles are learning. Number three, the Lord is again providing for his people. Verse 16, taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, gave it to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. You can imagine a scene, right? Everyone is seated neatly, 
spoon, fork, placemat, a napkin in there. And like, there's nothing to eat. Like, why are we doing this? Jesus takes five loaves, two fish, and says a blessing. He gives thanks. Disciples were looking at the difficulties. What does Jesus do? He talks to the Father. Notice that. Well, I don't know what we're going to do. What are we going to do? I don't know. Jesus like, oh, excuse me. I'm going to give thanks. Father. And the normal prayer of that, of that day was, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. He gives a blessing. He breaks the bread. He distributes the bread and the fish to everyone who is seated as much as they wanted until all their tummies were filled. In fact, the Greek verb here in our text uh, gave them to the disciples means that Jesus kept breaking and breaking and breaking and breaking and giving and giving and giving. Every time he broke, the more he broke, the more there was for everyone until everyone was completely satisfied. Now, if you're a naturalist and you don't believe in miracles, and maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, I don't believe any of that stuff. Okay. So Jesus went to the mountain ahead of time. No one knew. He hid enough food for 10,000 people in a cave. A day later, he comes up to that mountain, and then when he closes his eyes and prays, and everyone closes their eyes, he runs to the cave, takes all the food out, and then serves everybody when their eyes are open. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's harder to believe that than the king of kings, lord of lords, creator of the universe, to produce bread. He created the earth out of nothing. All four accounts have this narrative. Two of the four, Matthew and John, saw it firsthand. Luke, we know, is an investigator, a doctor, and talked to eyewitnesses. The miracle took place. The incredible miracle that he does not only points to the deity of Christ, his rulership, his authority, his creative power, and the provision of Christ, But let me tell you something else, family. When they did that miracle up on that hill, on that mountain that night, on that day, excuse me, it pointed to many stories for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. The story of Elijah and the widow, Zephaniah, 1 Kings 17, in the midst of a drought, starvation. Yet God provided out of very little flour and oil to feed the widow, to feed Elijah the prophet and her household for many days, the Bible says. Or Elisha, the feeding of a hundred men with barley cakes, 20 barley cakes, hundreds of men, 2 Kings 4:42. Over and over, this, this provision of God, miracles of food, shows that God alone is, uh, is able to supply what we need. But let me tell you what the most glaring story of that feeding was, and that is the story of manna from heaven. If you were up on that mountain, you couldn't miss it. Remember the children of Israel being led by Moses through the wandering in the wilderness without supply of food, and what happened, right? Moses cries out, God provides bread, manna, quail from heaven. In order to contextually understand this miracle, we need to see two things. From their perspective. One is the unquestionable connection between Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Moses feeding the one the Israelites in the desert. They're both in the wilderness. They're both hungry. They both were fed miraculously. Jesus on a mountain. It's during the Passover. Right? Remembering the slavery, uh, escape from slavery led by Moses. They both were fed with bread, manna in the wilderness. 
bread here of the barley loaves. They're both fed with meat, fish here, a quail in the wilderness. We read in Exodus. Luke's description in verse 12, when it says desolate place, is another reminder, points to Exodus, the wilderness experience between Egypt and the promised land. In fact, you don't have to look now, but if you look at the Gospel of John, chapter 6, the feeding of this 5,000, 10,000 people in the wilderness triggers immediately into Jesus' teaching. Oh, let me go back to John. Can you go back to John 6, please? Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is what? My flesh. It's immediately following the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. The multiplication that Jesus is just multiplying bread and fish never stops. Creator of the universe, provider, sustainer of the universe. He doesn't get up on the mountain and say, hey, fall from the sky. Keep breaking it. It's provision, providing food for everyone. Was there enough food? Look at verse 17. And they all ate and were Karzazo, satisfied. It's a word that's used for, for an animal in a feeding trough, eating all he can. They had all they wanted, the amount of food that satisfied everyone with exactly 12 baskets left over for the disciples. See, when Moses fed the Israelites, you know the story, it was enough for the day. Right before the Sabbath, it was enough for two days. Jesus feeds the multitude, and there's abundance left over. The miracle is pointing to the reality, the truth, that Jesus is the true and the better Moses. That Jesus Christ is the true and better exodus from slavery. He's the true and better deliverer. He's the true and better redeemer. He delivers us from sin, from hell, from death and destruction and offers us true and satisfying bread that saves us from starvation. Not just physical but eternal destruction, offering his life for us. Jesus is not coming to the world to make bread, but to be our all-satisfying bread for our souls. Yes, he cares about physical hunger, but, intimate, but excuse me, infinitely more about your soul, my soul. He came into the world not to give you bread, but to be your bread. Jesus is the greater Moses. The second thing you have to understand about this passage in order to really understand what's going on is to understand that when you hear the word bread and they hear the word bread, it's two different things. When you hear the word bread, if you're like me, you maybe you think of Wonder Bread as a kid, right? A sandwich, a little bologna sandwich, peanut butter and jelly, you think of bread. Uh, when I hear the word bread, I think of Sullivan's Bakery in New York City. I, I just love their bread, right? I'm like, I could taste it almost now. But when they hear bread, it was something very different. We go to the store, we have hundreds of choices, like a giant rack. When they hear bread, they hear staple, they hear live, you know, without it you die. 
We never think of bread in that term. But bread to them would signify to them life and death. It was their staple. It was something they needed to sustain themselves for life itself. We tell you, we think sandwich. To them it was life or death. So Jesus, yes, fills and satisfies their physical hunger. And it was, it was the very thing they needed at the moment to sustain life. It was given to them freely. But think. There was more left over than what started. You ever think about that? Five loaves, two fish. What's left? Twelve. There's more wet before it got started, this miracle, than in the end. There's more in the end, excuse me, than when it got started in this miracle. And the point of the miracle is that Jesus, listen, alone sustains us. Jesus alone is the one who satisfies our souls. So let me ask you the question, is Jesus enough for you? Is he your satisfaction? You, you see, sin and brokenness and rebellion cause us to seek comfort, to seek fulfillment and satisfaction in anything else but God. People will look to all kinds of places for deep soul satisfaction, success, success, money, entertainment, relationships, sex, family, even religious performance. These things can be good in their proper context, but none of them can bear the weight of the longing of our souls. None of them can satisfy the hunger of our hearts. Even in places where food is abundant, listen, there's a spiritual hunger that abounds in every heart. Our souls all long for the peace and meaning and purpose that can only come from knowing God and being known by Him. Dorothy Sayers says something like this, Sin is the radical interior dislocation of the heart. Sin is the radical dislocation of the heart. When a bone is dislocated and out of joint, it's not centered where it should be and causes havoc everywhere. That is a human heart that is centered on something other than God. The human soul is like open arms seeking something, reaching out to someone or something to cling to, end quote. See, the problem is not primarily with our desires for satisfaction, but where we're looking for it. There's an expression of our fallen nature that looks for fulfillment in such unsatisfying places. But Jesus comes to us and says in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is speaking about the crucifixion. For he gives us life through his death on the cross, his substitutionary death. He died for us, for our sins, and his resurrection from the grave. He offers our by his body for our salvation. So we can have relationship with God. And the blessings of salvation for Jesus, he's saying here and pointing to, he's our nourishment, he's our provision, he's our sustenance, and he's our satisfaction. Isaiah 55, we were a couple of, you know, not long ago we were there, and he spoke about the Messiah coming to the banquet of the Messiah. Isaiah writes, come, that's the call, come to the banquet of the Messiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. It's free. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And then Isaiah says, why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Why are you searching and running and trying to get fulfillment, satisfaction, and sustenance for life in other places? Listen carefully to me, Isaiah says, and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. So although we're dead in our sins and we have no right to the banquet feast of God, God calls us through the personal work of Jesus. 
He gives to us our, the, the longing of our souls. Jesus dies. His flesh is, is ripped and broken as he goes to the cross. His blood is spread. Uh, uh, his blood is, is spilt. And he becomes our bread, our all-nourishing, all-satisfying bread for sinners who trust him. J.C. Ryle. The heart of man can never be satisfied with the things of this world. It is always empty and hungry and thirsty and dissatisfied till it comes to Christ. Can't get any more clear than that. The manna from heaven is the ultimate, points to the ultimate significance, satisfaction, and sustenance. It's Jesus, the Passover lamb. Slain for our souls, our sin, excuse me, his death is available. Do you trust him? Do you know him? Do you understand that Jesus is ending his ministry here in Galilee, we'll see in a couple of weeks, teaching us and teaching them the supreme sufficiency and sustaining provision that's in him and him alone. Have you trusted him? As the band comes up, I want to challenge all of us this morning. Listen carefully. The band's going to lead us in a song, and part of the song says this. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. In all my victories, Jesus is better. In any comfort, Jesus is better. More than riches, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Do you believe that this morning? That's my prayer for all of us this morning. That in all things, in all circumstances, in all trials, in all joy... Jesus will be our satisfying, sustaining bread. He gave his life. He rose from the grave. Help our heart believe. Let us pray. Father, with so many things drawing our attention in so many different places, Father, we pray as we... As we Respond to the preaching of your word and to the miraculous that Jesus performed. Lord, we pray that we would see him, our all-satisfying treasure. Be nourished, complete, satisfied in him. Even when things around us may be crashing, even when things around us may be difficult, even when things around us don't make sense. You know what you're doing. And we'll trust you in it. May you be to us the living bread from heaven. And may we be nourished and satisfied ultimately in you and you alone we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.